Hello and welcome to the Conflict Skills Podcast. I'm your host, professional mediator Simon Good. This podcast is designed to help you develop the confidence and strategic tools for dealing with conflict, whether that conflict is connected to work, study, or personal relationships. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about strong emotions and particularly how they relate to conflict. At the surface, probably the most common emotion people associate with conflict is anger. But I'll sort of explain why we have emotions, what purpose they serve, how we can manage our own emotions and prevent negative consequences and, I guess, reacting rather than responding. And I'll also talk about some strategies that you can use to manage strong emotions in other people. Similar to the previous episode where I talked about de-escalation, the approach that we take to areas like when someone's feeling very angry or frustrated, or maybe it's distressed and worried, or they feel like things are slipping out of their control, I'll talk about some approaches that can help. And in some situations, it might be possible to help them to de-escalate, regulate themselves, and then shift the conversation towards future and solution focus. In other situations, we might be able to do something that's helpful and supportive, but probably in some in some cases, the magic recipe there is we also need the added ingredient of time. So I'll talk about when you might need just to be patient and what some of those indicators might be. And finally, if it's helpful for you, I'll talk very briefly about my experience meditating and understanding just how that very practical tool can help us to I guess come to an understanding that we aren't our emotions. I'm not just angry or furious or disgusted or appalled or surprised or shocked or whatever. Um, In fact, emotions come and go. And when we realize this, often through something like meditation, yoga, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different paths to get to the same point. We realize that we aren't our emotions, that emotions come and go within us, which can really help us then not to take them so seriously, which means that we might have an increased chance of responding rather than reacting. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got a question or a comment about this topic or something else that I've talked about in the podcast, or maybe something that you'd like me to talk about in the future, you can email podcast at Simon Good. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T podcast at Simon Good. And the spelling of my name is S-I-M-O-N-G-O-O-D-E dot com. So podcast at simongood.com. Thanks again. Let's get into the topic today. The overall pattern that we often see with emotions and conflict is a negative spiral. A lot of the time when I'm called in to do a mediation, by that stage, there's probably pretty strong emotions in most situations. Um, Often it's anger, uh, frustration, feeling trapped and stuck. Sometimes it's that kind of helplessness, but in other cases, it's just a real despair, like it's more like hopelessness. And whatever those negative emotions are, they tend to propagate themselves. Something like anger has a tendency, unfortunately, of creating more anger, both within us and within the other people around us, which can all form a part of a negative spiral. In part, that might involve the two people who are in the mediation or in the conflict if there's no mediation happening. They get angry and frustrated, so they might lash out, um, you know, not quite, not be as patient or uh, careful in articulating their view, etc., which might mean that they take an action that's a little bit more harsh than they normally would. The other person then receives that and thinks, you know, why are you being such a jerk? <laughs> um, all I was doing was trying to explain what I was thinking, and so then they often respond in kind. And the challenge here is that a lot of the time this is all happening underneath the surface. We 
really only understand someone else and what the other person's doing based on our conditioning, but in particular how we're feeling at the time. And when we're feeling more stressed, it's likely that then we have more of a focus on the negative aspects. We tend to assume that the other person's done that thing because they don't like us or they're out to get us or they're being petty or selfish or whatever it is. We don't tend to, I guess, estimate the same level of influence about the contextual factors that might have influenced them acting the way that they are. Maybe they're just under the pump and stressed or they didn't have much time to write that email. And it's not that they don't respect you. It's just that it might have come across as a bit disrespectful or you've received it as disrespectful because they're in a rush. And the way that you interpret the words in the email will depend on how you're feeling at the time, that idea of the negative increasing more negative. The spiral, though, is actually bigger than just the two people involved in the conflict a lot of the time. It might mean that you come home from work if you've got conflict happening at work and you're already a bit frazzled. You're tired, you're stressed, you've probably got adrenaline pumping through your system and you just aren't tolerant for frustration which means that when your kids are a bit annoying or your partner's not as empathetic and patient and, you know, a bit snappy and tired themselves, you tend to, again, overreact. And then you might then find that the conflict spreads. It's not just connected to that person at work that you're in conflict with. It's um, this toxic element that's contagious. <laughs> and unfortunately, it means that we can sometimes affect the people around us, which means then that we get probably reciprocal reciprocally infected as they act then snappy and negative to us. And then what do you know, we show up at work the next day and take more negativity back in. It's often not just the other person. As we think about relationships and conflict, it really exists between two people and involves both of the people, including you. And that also sometimes, if we can pause and understand this, can help us to understand the contextual factors or even just within this cycle of conflict, how that's also contributing to the other person's behavior, which can help us not to take it as personally. I mean, not always, but that's, I guess, the point that we're working towards. This all means that people in conflict often become injured. They're just hurt. There's part of them that's missing. They're carrying some scars. There's a cumulative effect of stress. It might mean that not just increasing conflict, maybe because you're in conflict, you're having trouble concentrating, so you're not performing as well at work. And all of this can give us this sense of feeling trapped, that hopelessness creeps up on us. And before you know it, we're feeling just completely pessimistic, like this is never going to change. What's the point? And we tend to lose sight of the power and influence that we have, which is a real shame in situations where we could help to improve things, not just for the other people, but by the way, also for ourselves. So we want to, I guess, avoid being a part of this spiral, which will mean avoiding that tendency to react rather than responding and react, respond. When I talk about that word react, I'm really talking about your past, the emotions that come up, the thoughts, the way that you interpret someone else's behavior is all to do with your history. It's the way that you've been conditioned, the way that you've been taught, the previous times when you felt safe or you felt challenged or under threat, when people have done those same kind of things, what you've learned from your parents, from other friends and family who have been influences for you. It might be early work mentors and managers that you've respected and looked up to. We have to recognize that our interpretation of all of these situations is because of the way that we've come to make meaning about the world. Conditioning is basically just learning how to feel and learning how to think. 
which means that if we're going to avoid um, taking action on that reaction, then we need to be aware of it. So we can't stop ourselves having that feeling, the flicker of annoyance when the other person acts like a bit of a jerk. But maturity comes when we can create a distance between that experience of reaction and our decision or behavior as we decide how to respond. So let's think first about why do we have all of these kind of emotions? We can see that they're negative. So what the heck do we have them for? They actually seem quite annoying. Wouldn't it be simpler if we were a bit more like you know, robots that just sort of followed through the functions without thinking? Um, unfortunately, I actually get the sense that that's the way that a lot of organizations function is that they want people to operate. It's not so much like robots. Actually, the image that I often get is that they want people to operate at the level of ants, <laughs> this automatic unconscious going through the motions almost at the behest of a queen that gives the orders up above. And that's not how humans work. <laughs> and similarly in relationships, if we think that we can control the other person or we expect to always be perfect, well, I mean, to be honest, we're probably setting ourselves up for a bit of disappointment there. We have emotions because of evolution, we've evolved with them, and they've served a purpose, and the main goal of evolution has been survival. And so our emotions part, form part of our survival mechanisms. We have the fight or flight response, the amygdala that's prone to respond to threats. The way that emotions tend to operate is that it serves to orient ourselves in the world. We don't actually have positive and negative emotions. The cliche, some people say, this is a negative emotion, this is positive. Actually, it's not true. It depends on the context and our goals and all the rest of it. But we do have two different kinds of emotions, broadly speaking. The first kind is attraction, and the second kind is avoidance. So really being excited or looking forward to something or grateful when something happens, feeling a real connection when a loved one does a kind thing for us. Um, um, I mean, all sorts of those things that we might think of as positive, uh, being proud of something that we've done, they serve to attract us more towards similar things when we like someone and we feel happy and um, it's enjoyable and it's funny when we're talking to them, then we want to spend more time with them. And historically, that's probably been because they were a good fit for us. Let's make a tribe because we need to survive when there's food and we need to make decisions, it will of course be easier to live with people who think in the way that we do and who resonate with us, even if they've got a different approach. On the other hand, we also experience emotions that tend towards making us avoid something. The foods that we eat, if it's something that we're not familiar with, it can be almost like disgust, which has been important to make sure that we don't just eat everything that we come across and end up poisoning ourselves. The people who tend to make us feel uncomfortable, well, again, that might have served a historical survival function, either in selecting the people that we spend time with and connect with and join together and, I guess, become interdependent with, but also the people that we should just avoid. You know, someone who's not safe or they're unpredictable, well, that means that they might not be a good person to sleep in their vicinity, for example. They might come and attack us or hurt us in some way. So we have these two emotions of attraction and avoidance. We've developed them through that evolutionary process. And what that means is that they do give us helpful information about the world, but they need interpreting. Me deciding to try foreign foods that I'm not familiar with, I rationally might know that it's 
quote unquote safe. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to get poisoned. I can see my friends and family all eating this food. But we almost need to interpret that emotion for what it is. This is a new kind of food, so of course it's not familiar to me. So I don't immediate appreci immediately appreciate it. It's, you know, a weird texture and the emotion that might come up is that it's just a bit yucky. It's disgusting. I may talk to my six-year-old about this all of the time, and it's surprising how adults sometimes are able to explain things to kids, but then in a bizarre way, not able to take on the same truths themselves. So we have these emotions for attraction and avoidance. We need to layer on top, though, our goals. It's why I often start conflict resolution training by saying, let's get clear about what's important here. Because if not, it means that we've got no way to orient ourselves before what's important. There's an old saying, if you don't know which path, or if you don't know where you're going, then any path will lead you there. And that often happens with emotions. The other thing that we need to be aware of is that emotions exist at a subconscious level. When I talk about survival, that's often been in the midst of a very hostile world. That we've lived in a hostile environment, which means that when it comes to matters of survival, there's no time to go away for an hour and reflect about what you're feeling. They happen almost instantaneously. And so we need to almost be aware of that reaction that we're having internally. And as I've said earlier, to create a space to understand what's going on and then decide which parts of those emotions we want to take and sort of do what they're telling us to do. And which parts of those emotions we might need to consider in a, I guess, compassionate and understanding way, but we might decide not to act on that impulse if it's not in alignment with what's important to us. If my wife says something that's annoying, I might be justified sometimes in saying, actually, you're wrong about that. And my emotion might want me to do that. I want to um, feel like things are certain and or feel like I have status and importance. And I mean, after all, she's not really listening to me very well. But my overall goal is to be supportive in this situation or just to reduce stress myself. I don't really want to have an argument right now. I'm tired and frazzled myself and this is going to add more negativity. So I might choose to let something go, even though my emotion is saying, oh, this is so frustrating. I've explained this six times. Why doesn't she get it? Or something like that. It's bizarre, isn't it? Like in the moment, these emotions feel so justified. Like we take up the righteous saber, convinced that God is on our side. We are right. We need to correct them. After all, they are wrong. Well, do you need to correct everybody who's wrong? Maybe your evening would be peaceful and calm and relaxing and let you recharge and um, I guess set yourself up for the things that are actually important to you, which might mean that correcting every single person that's wrong starts to drop down the list of priorities if we can pause and reflect. So we have emotions, they tend to operate on this principle of attraction and avoidance, and what we're typically trying to avoid is two things, pain and uncertainty. This has been very important in terms of survival. We don't want to feel pain and ultimately death, and we don't want uncertainty. We want to feel in control. When we don't know what's coming, it means that we can't plan for it. And in some situations, that's mean that historically it's caused people significant problems and maybe even killed them. We want then factors that tend to help us avoid pain and uncertainty. And by the way, when I talk about pain, it's not necessarily just physical pain, although that's part of it. If we think someone's going to attack us, we might feel afraid. And often the, the 
connection that comes is because of what they might do to us. You know, they might punch us in the face or something, and we can almost imagine how painful that will be, or you know, getting one of our teeth knocked out or something like that. A very visceral, strong reaction a lot of in a lot of these cases. And the same section of our brain that would process someone punching you is also activated when we experience emotional pain. Things like rejection or shame and embarrassment. It's the same part of our brain that processes those emotions. So if you're standing up in front of someone in conflict, if you're thinking about how unfair the other person's being, they're going around and talking to other people in your team at work about you, well, that's going to impact you. You might feel that embarrassment or shame or a sense of tension and uncertainty. What do they think of me now? We might think that this is just completely unfair and we don't want people to think that we're a jerk or we haven't done the right thing. It's that same section of our brain that's getting activated there. So the five things that people tend to crave when they're in an escalated state are all connected to that reducing pain or uncertainty. The five factors that people want are autonomy. They want to feel in control. People want certainty. They want to know what to expect and what's coming next and what they can do and to feel like they're in the driver's seat even about those kind of decisions. People want to feel relatedness. They want to feel understood, like you acknowledge where you, they're coming from, like you think that their perspective is valid. People want fairness. They want to feel like decisions that are made is fair and it's consistent and they're not being treated unjustly. And the final thing that people want is status. They want to feel important. They want to be admired. They want to be acknowledged. They want to be heard and they want to be seen. So if we think about those five factors, it's really helpful because it gives us information about what we can do to offer someone who's feeling negative emotions like stressed or overwhelmed or angry or whatever else it might be. So I talked about some of those things in the podcast episode where I explored de-escalation, but they also give us a little bit of insight as to what kind of things will be helpful for us. How can we create certainty here? How can I increase relatedness? Who can I talk to that can give me that empathy in the time that I need it? Are there actions that I can take to address unfairness if that's what's happening? How can I build autonomy and focus on things that are within my control rather than things that I'm really upset about, but ultimately there's nothing that I can do about those? So those are the five factors that people tend to crave. And as we're thinking about strong emotions, they're often the medicine. <laughs> if we can find a way to gain those things ourselves or offer them to someone else, it tends to actually reduce the negative impact that these emotions can have bouncing around inside of us and between us. I just wanted to touch on anger briefly before we go into some strategies about how do we manage our emotions. Um, anger is what you would call a secondary emotion. It's often the tip of the iceberg and um, it's often a big tip of the iceberg, <laughs> it's sticking a long way out of the water. But underneath anger is usually fear or hurt. It might be a sense of a loss of control or a lack of certainty, which, as I've said, sort of contributes to that fight or flight response. But it might be hurt, it might be feeling betrayed or let down or disappointed. And it comes out as anger. And it's important when you're feeling angry to pause and reflect and think, well, what else am I feeling or what am I really feeling underneath that? Why is it that I'm so frustrated? Is it because I have a sense that things are really stuck and I've got no way out? Why am I feeling so annoyed at this other person? Is it because they're treading on my toes and micromanaging me and I feel like I'm losing my autonomy? My sense of control and agency is slipping away. 
if we can get underneath what's going on in terms of the anger, it often gives us a much greater capacity to respond strategically rather than just reacting. Okay, so let's think then about how do we manage our own emotions when we're feeling it, I guess the first um, tool that we can use is analysis. Well, what are you actually feeling? When I've talked about that principle of attraction and avoidance, which of the categories would you say that it fits into? And do you think that it's because of potential pain, physical pain, emotional pain, losing a job it might affect you financially? That would all go in that pain bucket. Or is it uncertainty? Just pulling apart those two often gives us then a course of action that could be useful to address it. But this ability to pause and reflect is something that we need to practice and develop. It's like a muscle that gets stronger the more that we go to the gym and exercise and work it out. So you might need to find opportunities to do this. I myself have found yoga really helpful because I get into a very uncomfortable position and then I need to practice breathing <laughs> and trying as much as possible to keep my breath consistent and even and a particular kind of breath that sort of engages the chest and the throat in a different way. And it's not hard. It's Sorry, it is hard. It's not easy. I'm a really unfit, unflexible kind of person. I've gone 41 years without really doing any exercise, which unfortunately means that as I've taken up yoga, there's been a lot of challenges that I've experienced. But in a weird way, that's actually been incredibly beneficial because every time I'm in a tough situation, I've practiced calming myself down, keeping a level head, maintaining my composure. When you're at work, the more that you're able to pause and reflect before reacting, whether that's in a team meeting, if someone's finished speaking and you go in to respond to what they've just said, particularly in situations where there's a, a level of stress, that might be a, a customer coming in to complain and you're the one that needs to speak with them, or when your phone rings and you're picking up your phone and a lot of us experience a, a spike of adrenaline in those kind of situations, just being aware of that helps us then when we're in conflict and the stakes are higher to be aware of that. And if we can pause and reflect and think, I wonder what this is about, what's this reaction about for me? When we're in conflict and we're in front of the other person and we're on the spot, it then means that we've developed this ability to reflect. So pause and reflect. It's something that we practice and a skill that we can develop, but there might also be things that you can do in your environment to help you with this. I sometimes have little post-it notes or business card sized notes that I stick underneath my computer monitor to remind me of particular things when I'm working on them. Like one of them is breathing, for example, or stretching or being mindful, engaging my senses, even just prioritize. Sometimes I'll write that and put it underneath my monitor because when I'm in conflict and someone's saying something that's not correct, it's so tempting to correct them and then before you know it you're in a debate which was completely unnecessary whereas maybe the priority was just some other thing that you wanted to focus on so getting off the phone as quickly as possible might have actually been a much more important goal if you'd paused to think it through so having it in front of you in somewhere that's obvious and it reminds you might be something that could help you before you go into a difficult meeting if you think that the other person's likely to react and become escalated you could jot down notes at the top of your notepad or take a few deep breaths before you go in. How we prepare, both rationally, getting clear on the facts and how we're going to state our opinion, what questions we're going to ask, is important. But also how do we prepare emotionally and physically? 
taking a few deep breaths, splashing some cold water on your face, making sure that you've had something to eat. These will also increase our ability to pause and reflect, which helps us to manage our own emotions when, when, when we're in the midst of conflict, difficult conversations, etc. Uh, calming down your own body is another option that's sort of connected to this. When we experience emotions, there's a head component, but also a body component. If you think about anger, there's the rational bit, this is so unfair, they're being so unreasonable, whatever it is. But that also triggers a bunch of flow and effects in our body. Internally, adrenaline is released, our brain releases cortisol, the stress hormone in response to conflict, which means that there's a buildup of energy. If we think historically, the reaction to threats has been fight or flight, we get ready to fight or we get ready to run away. Unfortunately, that same uh, approach is what our body gets ready for, even though like, if I'm in conflict, I'm talking to one of my staff about something they've done wrong. I don't ideally want to get ready to fight them or to run away halfway through the conversation, but that's what my body is getting ready for which means that if I can do something to either release that buildup of energy or to calm my body down, that that will pay pretty significant dividends when it comes to my capacity for staying calm in the midst of a tricky situation. So taking a few deep breaths, particularly with a really long exhale, breath out, using your nose is more effective than your mouth, adopting a power pose, like sitting up straight, being still, even arms up in the air or you know, putting them behind your head like a bit of a peacock kind of pose releases uh, testosterone that helps us to feel confident. Maybe shaking physically is something that's helpful for you. Going for a quick walk around the building so that you can burn off some of that energy that's sitting there. Doing some squats. Take a few minutes meditating, being mindful, thinking about your senses. What's the sound of traffic outside? Wiggling your toes and feeling the socks in your shoes. These all help to calm us down physically. We don't even necessarily sometimes need the rational bit of reminding ourselves what's important. If we can calm down our body, it often helps to engage that rational bit of our brain, which inherently means that we take more of a, I guess, helpful and strategic approach. The next thing that we can do is more connected to the head component of the emotions. It's something called emotional granularization. This is a sort of a psychological term that basically just refers to breaking apart what you're feeling down into more and more specific pieces. So if I say I'm just furious right now, well, the temptation then is that I'll understand my whole being as being fury. It's part of that furiousness, which means that it's easy to, I guess, almost excuse our behavior that we're in the grips of furiousness. But when we can pull apart emotions more specifically, it often helps us to externalize ourselves from the emotion. The emotion is something that comes and affects your mind, but your mind still sits there. It doesn't become completely captive by the emotion. Um, and it also helps us to realize that we're feeling more than one thing in almost any different situation. So an example would be going for a job interview. I might say, tell myself, I'm feeling really nervous. And if I pause and ask myself a question, like, well, what else am I feeling? Well, it might also be grateful for the opportunity, uh, excited about the fact that the interview is almost here, and maybe excited about the fact of how good it's going to be, going and getting some lunch after the interview's finished, or going home after this pretty nerve-wracking kind of experience that I need to have. I'm probably feeling a little bit confident and a little bit 
not confident. And if I can pull that apart even more, it's like, well, what am I feeling confident about? It might be that I've prepared as well as I could for this interview. And the things that I'm not confident about are, what if they ask me a difficult question or I need to do some type of a test or activity or something like that. So that even can help us then to remind ourselves that the things we're nervous about are outside of our control. So although we can understand why we have this emotion, it's uncertainty and that historically has been something that's been quite risky. In this situation, it's a good thing. I need to go to this job interview and the fact that I don't know what's going to happen is something that I can't do anything about, but that doesn't mean I should avoid this situation. I can almost be like the parent talking about the inner child, talking to the inner child and saying, look, I know you're scared, but this is something that's really important for you to do. Uh, adopting that approach of emotional granularization helps us to gain clarity around all of that and then to manage it more effectively. The final idea that we can use for managing our own emotions is some type of externalization. That might be talking to somebody else about what's going on for you, writing it down. You could talk to yourself, <laughs> maybe having a chat to yourself in the car and maybe saying, this is what I would really like to happen or this is what I'm really worried about. When we externalize our emotions, it helps us to make sense of them. It engages the rational bit of our brain, which means that we often can take it with a grain of salt rather than getting swept away with the emotions that we're feeling as they come and go. With writing it down, or particularly if we talk to someone else and they can listen to us well, it also engages particularly the right side of our brain, which is more focused on creativity, less structured, which means that we might come up with some options to help us resolve conflict. The right bit of our brain is engaged when we empathize or we have someone else empathize with us. And that right bit of our brain is also really important for mitigating the stress response. The right side of our brain comes in effectively to help us to calm down again after we've been in a stressful situation, which is why when you can talk to someone and they're really good at listening and you just feel this connection, it feels great. <laughs> and as a result, we often tend to feel more calm afterwards. So those are some ideas for managing our own emotions, that strategy of the pause and reflect, calming down ourselves physically, emotional granularization, and finding opportunities to externalize them. The other thing that I wanted to mention is how can we use tools to manage emotions in other people? Well, the first approach that we can take is to put a name or a label on the emotions, to say something like, look, it sounds like you're feeling really disappointed at the end of the day. Is that right? I take it that you're angry about the way that your friend has treated you, but ultimately it's for you, it's just that sense of feeling let down. This isn't how you think trends, friends should treat each other. And so it's not so much about that, you know, it hurt you or didn't hurt you or caused you a problem. It's almost like a sense of betrayal. Have I got that right? Do you think that might be what's going on? We do this in a very careful way. We, we tread carefully. So we wouldn't say, I understand what you're feeling. I, I would say something like, I wonder if you're feeling something like this. Does, does that resonate with you at all? Um, and it gives them the opportunity then to correct us. And there's not that same sense of disengagement that might come up. If you say, I know what you're feeling, it's like this. And they probably even subconsciously have a sense of, well, no, it's not exactly like that, or that's not 100% of what's going on in this situation. So naming the emotions is really helpful. 
Chris Voss, one of the FBI hostage negotiators I often reference in my training, uses the phrase, we name it to tame it. <laughs> if we just dismiss and ignore the emotions, they tend to still drive often negative behaviors underneath the surface. The second thing that we can do after we've acknowledged the emotions is then to ask curious questions. You might say something like, look, it sounds like you're feeling quite disappointed. What would you like to see from the other person if you were to get a sense that they were taking this seriously and that things were starting to improve? I'm basically asking, what do you want? Like, I get that you're feeling this. What would be helpful? What do you think is a potential way forward? What would you like to see from the other person? And what have you thought about doing yourself? In a way, then, we shift the focus from the past and the problem to the future and the solutions, where I guess doing this as much as possible in a genuine way that's like, hey, help me understand where you're coming from. But it also helps to orient them. They can be stuck in complaining. And a lot of the time, or I think almost all the time, actually, a complaint can be reframed as a request. For us, we need to elicit this from them, ideally, which means asking the right question. What do you think would help? What do you think is needed to make things right? We can't repair and take back what was said and done back then. But if things were to start to improve, what would be, you know, the, the first thing that you'd like to see from the other person? What would you like to happen? What do you think the two of you need to put in place to prevent this kind of problem from coming up again and again? We also need to recognize the ebb and flow of emotions. When people are captivated by emotions, trapped within negative emotions almost sometimes, they might need some support so we can empathize and acknowledge, help them to shift towards the future, but they also might just need time. Feelings and emotions tend to operate with a real ebb and flow. You're not always feeling as stuck in sadness and grief after you've lost a loved one. Those feelings tend to come and go. Sometimes they're incredibly intense. Sometimes they're still there, but they're just not quite as strong, which means that in conflict, we can almost take advantage of this idea of the fluctuating pendulum swing of emotions and choose the right time and place to engage the other person. And if we notice that it's taken over them and they're not thinking clearly again, then we might back off and pause and come back to it at a better time. Which means that we might need to really remind ourselves of the importance of being patient. Even if you're right and they're wrong, it might mean that now's not the most productive time to address it. After a weekend or they've had a good night's sleep, they would be in a completely different headspace, which means that the approach that we take would end up being a lot more effective if we could just, I guess, align it with what was needed. So those are some ideas for managing the emotions of others, but broadly speaking, I would look for options for adding those five factors, autonomy, certainty, relatedness, fairness, and status. I might say to the other person, look, I know you're really disappointed about the decision, I'd just like you to know that I've double-checked the framework, the, the marking rubric that we need to use if you're upset about a grade that you've got in some of your study, so that they know that it's not because you don't like them or it's something about what they've written. You've used some external measure and that this is ultimately why you've come to the conclusion that you have. I would give them autonomy, so I'd say, look, thanks for explaining where you're coming from. I've got a different idea, a different take on the situation. Would it be okay if I walk you through my thoughts and then maybe that would help us then to figure out some options for getting on the same page moving forward. 
but I don't just blurt it out and say, well, you've had your chance to speak, now it's my go. I give them the sense of control and autonomy by saying, would it be okay if I walk you through my thoughts here? If someone's just complained, I might say to them, look, there's a few options then as potential ways forward, and you might have other ideas as well. Would it be okay if I just talk you through some of these initial potential paths and you can see whether or not that might be a good fit, or maybe we can come up with something else that works better? Building in certainty, I wouldn't say to someone, thanks for that massive complaint, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. They're going to be sitting there just being furious. <laughs> it would be much more effective to say something like, look, thank you very much for letting me know, I'm going to go away and give it some thought, I need to go and talk to this person next, or I need to go and gather this data, I can't do that until tomorrow morning, which means that I'll be able to get back to you tomorrow afternoon, does three o'clock work for you if I give you a call? We've built in so much certainty that it's very likely that those negative emotions that they're feeling wouldn't be as strong, or at the least, they hopefully wouldn't increase and catastrophize and bubble away underneath the surface, becoming more and more toxic because they don't think that we've taken it them seriously. So how can you give the other person autonomy, the sense of control, build in certainty? How can we engage relatedness? Maybe it's demonstrating empathy and listening, even if we disagree. How can we emphasize fairness or put more fair elements in place and status how can we help them to feel important that might be giving them some time going and talking to them in person rather than just sending an email back and forth talking to them about why you wanted to prioritize this in the midst of everything because you're aware of just the significant impact that it's had on them all of these different approaches would be very helpful for the other person and managing those negative emotions as a final point, I just wanted to mention that mediation is one of the incredibly powerful things that can help us to create distance from our emotions. For me, in my meditation practice, I sit quietly, focus on my breath, pay attention to my senses. Inevitably, I have memories come through or something that's happening tomorrow my brain wants to remind me of, and I try to gently bring myself back to my breath and my senses again. But in the meantime, I often feel emotions connected to that memory or that thing that's coming up in the future. I remember how unfair or unreasonable the other person was yesterday, or that dumb thing that I said in the middle of a, a conflict, which in hindsight is quite embarrassing. I really didn't manage that well. Maybe it's regret. Or I'm worried about something that's coming up tomorrow, the next time that I have to see this person. And often when our mind is focusing on these different scenarios, it comes along with an emotional layer. We feel literally like the same parts of our brain activate as if we're in the moment. If it's someone that it really annoys us, you'll start to feel annoyed. It might even be a physical reaction that comes along with that, like tightness in your shoulders or clenching your hands up into fists. Even subconsciously, often when I'm meditating, I'm aware that oh my goodness, like I'd moved physically as a result of just thinking about this thing. And meditation has really been helpful for me to realize that these emotions come and go. When our mind is playing this unfortunate slideshow of everything that's happened in the past and the future, it's easy to get swept away in those emotions. But if we can become more aware of it, it helps us then not to fixate and ruminate at, at least as much. We don't obsess about things that aren't perfect or they're not going well or they're challenging or stressful. And although we still feel those emotions, the goal isn't to become some type of a robot that doesn't feel them. It's almost like then we can just acknowledge them and experience them as coming and going. 
rather than something that sweeps us away. We're sitting on the edge of the river and watching the emotions float down rather than being in the river trying to frantically dodge them or some of them are pushing us further and further down the river and we're desperately trying to swim back up. All of that can be very exhausting and it means that unfortunately we tend to lose sight of what's important and react with I guess just something that's at a subconscious level it felt right at the time or I didn't even think about it, I actually just did it almost subconsciously, or we just repeat old patterns. A lot of people are just engaged in repetition to the point of idiocy, it's not working for you, like why do you keep talking to that neighbour that is upset with you, you can just avoid them, just be polite and respectful, but there's no need to correct that person about something that they're saying that's wrong. When we meditate, it means that we often have our feelings be taken in context. We can consider them with a grain of salt, which gives us that opportunity to pause and reflect before we react. And ultimately, we begin to have this ability to respond. We're more able to focus on the things that are important to us and act in a way that's in alignment with that. So I, I know, like even six months ago, if someone told me that meditation would be so helpful, I'd just be like... You know, bugger off, that is not going to work for me, I'm the kind of person that can't concentrate and think for that long, there is no way I can do that. And having just taken the kind of terrifying act of trying it for 10 minutes once a day and I've gradually built up my time since then, I've just noticed this profound effect and so as much as I realise I'm coming across as probably a weird zealot evangelist about uh, meditation, there is an increasing body of research that shows these dramatic, powerful effects that it can have. We develop something called Mindsight, which is the capacity for paying attention to what our mind is looking at at any one moment, including our emotions, and it ultimately just helps us to orient ourselves. So I wanted to put it in there because I'm convinced that it would be helpful for some people, even though at the same time I'm aware that some of you are probably have already skipped the podcast, probably going on to the next episode, even just at the thought of something like meditation. So thanks for at least spending a moment to listen to me ramble about that. So I hope that that's been helpful for you, just looking at some of those problems with strong emotions, particularly in context, understanding why we have the emotions, the survival mechanism, avoiding that pain and uncertainty, some of those strategies for managing our own emotions, the pause and reflect, calming yourself down physically, emotional granularization and externalizing it somehow, as well as those tools that I've mentioned for managing emotions in others. And I really hope that this is helpful for you, whether you're in the midst of conflict and you could apply these tools yourself, or if you're supporting other people to manage conflict, I suppose this could almost be a starting point if you're intending to take a coaching approach and give them a little bit of guidance and feedback and input that would be helpful for them. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Again, if you've got any feedback, you can email me podcast at simongood.com. Otherwise, all the best. Bye for now.